and whose teeth chattered in his head as he seized me by the chin. Oh, don't cut my throat, sir, I pleaded in terror. Pray don't do it, sir. Tell us your name, said the man. Quick. Pip, sir. Once more, said the man, staring at me. Give it mouth. Pip. Pip, sir. Show us where you live, said the man. Point out the place. I pointed to where our village lay, on the flat inshore, among the alder trees and pollards a mile or more from the church. The man, after looking at me for a moment, turned me upside down and emptied my pockets. There was nothing in them but a piece of bread. When the church came to itself, for he was so sudden and strong that he made it go head over heels before me, and I saw the steeple under my feet, when the church came to itself, I say, I was seated on a high tombstone, trembling while he ate the bread ravenously. You young dog, said the man, licking his lips. What fat cheeks you got! I believe they were fat, though I was at that time undersized for my years and not strong. Darn me if I couldn't eat em, said the man with a threatening shake of his head, and if I had half a mind to it. I earnestly expressed my hope that he wouldn't, and held tighter to the tombstone on which he had put me, partly to keep myself upon it, partly to keep myself from crying. Now look here, said the man. Where's your mother? There, sir, said I. He started, made a short run, and stopped and looked over his shoulder. There, sir, I timidly explained. Also Georgiana, that's my mother. Oh, said he, coming back. And is that your father, no longer your mother? Yes, sir, said I. Him too late of this parish. Ha, he muttered then, considering... Who do you live with? Supposing you're kindly let to live, which I ain't made up my mind about. My sister, sir. Mrs. Joe Gargery, wife of Joe Gargery the blacksmith, sir. Blacksmith, eh? said he, and looked down at his leg. After darkly looking at his leg and at me several times, he came closer to my tombstone, took me by both arms, and tilted me back as far as he could hold me, so that his eyes looked most powerfully down into mine, and mine looked most helplessly up into his. Now, look here, he said. The question being whether you're to be let to live. You know what a file is? Yes, sir. And you know what riddles is? Yes, sir. After each question he tilted me over a little more, so as to give me a greater sense of helplessness and danger. You get me a file, he tilted me again, and you get me riddles, he tilted me again. You bring them both to me, he tilted me again, or I'll have your heart and liver out, he tilted me again. I was dreadfully frightened, and so giddy that I clung to him with both hands and said, If you would kindly please to let me upright, sir, perhaps I shouldn't be sick, and perhaps I could attend more. He gave me a most tremendous dip and roll, so that the church jumped over its own weathercock. Then he held me by the arms in an upright position on the top of the stone and went on in these fearful terms. You bring me tomorrow morning early, that file and them whittles. You bring the lot to me that old battery over yonder. You do it, and you never dare to say a word, or dare to make a sign concerning you having seen such a person as me, or any person somever, and you shall be let to live. You fail, or you go from my words in any particular, no matter how small it is, and your heart and your liver shall be tore out, roasted, and ate. Now, I ain't alone, as you may think I am. There's a young man hid with me, in comparison with which young man I am an angel. That young man hears the words I speak. That young man has a secret way, peculiar to himself, of getting at a boy, and at his heart, and at his liver. 
It is vain for a boy to attempt to hide himself from that young man. A boy may lock his door, may be warm in bed, may tuck himself up, may draw the clues over his head, may think himself comfortable and safe, but that young man will softly creep and creep his way to him and tear him open. I may keep in that young man from harming of you at the present moment with great difficulty. I find it very hard to hold that young man off of your inside. Now what do you say? I said that I would get him to file, and I would get him what broken bits of food I could, and I would come to him at the battery early in the morning. See, Lord, strike you dead if you don't, said the man. I said so, and he took me down. Now, he pursued, you remember what you've undertook, and you remember that young man, and you get home. Good night, sir, I faltered. Much of that, said he, glancing about him over the cold, wet flat. I wish I was a frog. Or an eel. At the same time, he hugged his shuddering body in both his arms, clasping himself as if to hold himself together, and limped toward the low church wall. As I saw him go, picking his way among the nettles and among the brambles that bound the green mounds, he looked in my young eyes as if he were eluding the hands of the dead people, stretching up cautiously out of their graves to get a twist upon his ankle and pull him in. When he came to the low church wall, he got over it like a man whose legs were numbed and stiff, and then turned round to look for me. When I saw him turning, I set my face towards home, and I made the best use of my legs. But presently I looked over my shoulder and saw him going on again towards the river, still hugging himself in both arms and picking his way with his sore feet among the great stones dropped into the marshes here and there for stepping places when the rains were heavy or the tide was in. The marshes were just a long, black, horizontal line then, as I stopped to look after him, and the river was just another horizontal line, not nearly so broad nor yet so black, and the sky was just a row of long, angry red lines and dense black lines intermixed. On the edge of the river I could faintly make out the only two black things in all the prospect that seemed to be standing upright. One of these was the beacon by which the sailors steered, like an unhooped cask upon a pole, an ugly thing when you were near it. The other a gibbet, with some chains hanging to it which had once held a pirate. The man was limping on towards this latter as if he were the pirate come to life and come down and going back to hook himself up again. It gave me a terrible turn when I thought so, and as I saw the cattle lifting their heads to gaze after him, I wondered whether they thought so too. I looked all round for the horrible young man and could see no signs of him, but now I was frightened again and ran home without stopping. Chapter 2 My sister, Mrs. Joe Gargery, was more than twenty years older than I, and had established a great reputation with herself and the neighbors because she had brought me up by hand, having at that time to find out for myself what the expression meant and knowing her to have a hard and heavy hand, and to be much in the habit of laying it upon her husband as well as upon me, I suppose that Joe Gargery and I were both brought up by hand. She was not a good-looking woman, my sister, and I had a general impression that she must have made Joe Gargery marry her by hand. Joe was a fair man with curls of flaxen hair on each side of his smooth face, and with eyes of such a very undecided blue that they seemed to have somehow got mixed with their own whites. He was a mild, good-natured, sweet-tempered, easy-going, foolish, dear fellow, a sort of Hercules in strength and also in weakness. My sister, Mrs. Joe, 
with black hair and eyes, had such a prevailing redness of skin that I sometimes used to wonder whether it was possible she washed herself with a nutmeg grater instead of soap. She was tall and bony and almost always wore a coarse apron fastened over her figure behind with two loops and having a square impregnable bib in front that was stuck full of pins and needles. She made it a powerful merit in herself and a strong reproach against Joe that she wore this apron so much, though I really see no reason why she should have worn it at all, or why if she did wear it at all she could not have taken it off every day of her life. Joe's forge adjoined our house, which was a wooden house, as many of the dwellings in our country were, most of them at that time. When I ran home from the churchyard, the forge was shut up, and Joe was sitting alone in the kitchen. Joe and I being fellow sufferers and having confidences as such, Joe imparted a confidence to me the moment I raised the latch of the door and peeped in at him opposite to it sitting in the chimney corner. "'Mrs. Joe's been out a dozen times looking for you, Pip. She's out now making it a baker's dozen.' "'Is she?' Yes, Pip, said Joe, and what's where she's got Tickler with her. At this dismal intelligence I twisted the only button on my waistcoat round and round and looked in great depression at the fire. Tickler was a wax-ended piece of cane, worn smooth by collision with my tickled frame. She sat down, said Joe, and she got up, and she made a grab at Tickler, and she ran paged out. That's what she did said Joe, slowly clearing the fire between the lower bars with a poker and looking at it. She rampaged out, Pip. Has she been gone long, Joe? I always treated him as a larger species of child and as no more than my equal. Well, said Joe, glancing up at the Dutch clock, she's been on the rampage this last spell about five minutes, Pip. She's a-coming. Get behind the door, old chap, and have the jack-towel betwixt you. I took the advice. My sister, Mrs. Joe, throwing the door wide open and finding an obstruction behind it, immediately divined the cause and applied Tickler to its further investigation. She concluded by throwing me, I often served as a connubial missile, at Joe, who, glad to get hold of me on any terms, passed me on into the chimney and quietly fenced me up there with his great leg. "'Where have you been, you young monkey?' said Mrs. Joe, stamping her foot. "'Tell me directly what you've been doing to wear me away with fret and fright and worrit, or I'd have you out of that corner if you was fifty pips, and he was five hundred gargaries.' "'I have only been to the churchyard,' said I from my stool, crying and rubbing myself. "'Churchyard?' repeated my sister. "'If it weren't for me, you'd have been to the churchyard long ago and stayed there. Who brought you up by hand?' "'You did,' said I. "'And why did I do it, I should like to know?' exclaimed my sister. I whimpered. "'I don't know.' "'I don't,' said my sister. "'I'd never do it again. I know that. I may truly say I've never had this apron of mine off since born you were. It's bad enough to be a blacksmith's wife and him a gargery without being your mother.' My thoughts strayed from that question as I looked disconsolately at the fire— for the fugitive out on the marshes with the iron leg, the mysterious young man, the file, the food, and the dreadful pledge I was under to commit a larceny on those sheltering premises rose before me in the avenging coals. Ha! said Mrs. Joe, restoring Tickler to his station. Churchyard, indeed! You may well say churchyard, you too. One of us, by the by, had not said it at all. You'll drive me to the churchyard betwixt you one of these days, and oh, a precious pair you'll be without me! As she applied herself to set the tea-things, Joe peeped down at me over his leg as if he were mentally casting me and himself up, and calculating what kind of a pair we practically should make under the grievous circumstances foreshadowed. After that he sat, feeling his right side flaxen curls and whisker, and following Mrs. Joe about with his blue eyes, as his manner always was at squally times. 
My sister had a trenchant way of cutting our bread and butter for us that never varied. First, with her left hand, she jammed the loaf hard and fast against her bib, where it sometimes got a pin into it and sometimes a needle, which we afterwards got into our mouths. Then she took some butter, not too much, on a knife and spread it on the loaf in an apothecary kind of way, as if she were making a plaster, using both sides of the knife with a slapping dexterity and trimming and molding the butter off round the crust. Then she gave the knife a final smart wipe on the edge of the plaster, and then sawed a very thick round off the loaf, which she finally, before separating from the loaf, hewed into two halves, of which Joe got one and I the other. On the present occasion, though I was hungry, I dared not eat my slice. I felt that I must have something in reserve for my dreadful acquaintance and his ally, the still more dreadful young man. I knew Mrs. Joe's housekeeping to be of the strictest kind, and that my larcenous researches might find nothing available in the safe. Therefore I resolved to put my hunk of bread and butter down the leg of my trousers. The effort of resolution necessary to the achievement of this purpose I found to be quite awful. It was as if I had to make up my mind to leap from the top of a high house or plunge into a great depth of water, and it was made the more difficult by the unconscious Joe. In our already-mentioned Freemasonry as fellow-sufferers, and in his good-natured companionship with me, it was our evening habit to compare the way we bit through our slices by silently holding them up to each other's admiration now and then, which stimulated us to new exertions. Tonight Joe several times invited me, by the display of his fast-diminishing slice, to enter upon our usual friendly competition. But he found me each time with my yellow mug of tea on one knee and my untouched bread and butter on the other. At last I desperately considered that the thing I contemplated must be done, and that it had best be done in the least improbable manner consistent with the circumstances. I took advantage of a moment when Joe had just looked at me and got my bread and butter down my leg. Joe was evidently made uncomfortable by what he supposed to be my loss of appetite, and took a thoughtful bite out of his slice which he didn't seem to enjoy. He turned it about in his mouth much longer than usual, pondering over it a good deal, and after all gulped it down like a pill. He was about to take another bite, and had just got his head on one side for a good purchase on it, when his eye fell on me, and he saw that my bread and butter was gone. The wonder and consternation with which Joe stopped on the threshold of his bite and stared at me were too evident to escape my sister's observation. "'What's the matter now?' said she smartly as she put down her cup. "'I say, you know,' muttered Joe, shaking his head at me in a very serious remonstrance, "'Pip, old chap, you'll do yourself a mischief. "'It'll stick somewhere. You can't have chawed it, Pip.' "'What's the matter now?' repeated my sister more sharply than before. "'If you can cough any trifle on it up, Pip, I recommend you to do it.' 